Support for WMFE comes from Orlando Science Center, offering four floors of wonder and discovery for families and curious minds of all ages. With exhibits, movies, and live shows that promote learning new skills, exploring fresh ideas, and cultivating a better understanding of the world around us. Tickets and more at osc.org. The safety of space tourism in the wake of the Ocean Gate disaster. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The catastrophic implosion of a submersible visiting wreckage of the Titanic that left all five people on board dead is raising questions about regulation in the high-risk tourism industry, including space. We'll speak with one legal expert about the parallels between deep-sea adventures and space tourism trips and the path to regulation and safety. Then, a European spacecraft is sending us new images of Mercury. Only two missions have visited the planet closest to the Sun. We'll speak with a planetary scientist about the challenge of visiting Mercury and what this next mission may tell us about that rocky and hellishly hot planet. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. The search for the missing Ocean Gate submersible visiting the Titanic wreckage, carrying paying customers, captured headlines and news shows during its days-long search. All five people on board were killed, including the company's owner, who was piloting the mission. The tragedy is raising questions about regulation and safety in the so-called adventure tourism industry, which includes space travel. Commercial companies like Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and SpaceX take paying customers on spaceflight experiences. To talk more about the parallels between deep-sea adventures and space tourism trips and the path to regulation and safety, we're joined by Michelle Hanlon, co-director of the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law and its Center for Air and Space Law. Michelle, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here, Brendan. What are some of the things that that were going through your mind um, as this uh, sub-tragedy unfolded? So I'll be honest, it's, I'm not going to sound very sympathetic or caring, but um, I, it, you know, so many parallels are drawn between the deep sea and space. And so my immediate thought was, okay, what is the impact? Is this what what impact is this going to have on space tourism? And I'm I'm very concerned because we need space tourism. You know, we we want to support tourism because that's how we're going to build this industry. And when we look at um, you know the the bad actors in a in a program, it's re- it's really unsettling. And we don't know uh, if there was any fault to be to be assigned or blame to be assigned here. Um, we let's assume that everything worked. You know, these informed consents worked and. Um, the the uh, operator was completely above board, and and these are people who accepted the risk of something very risky. You know, when you go down that deep, um, you know, there's a reason Navy submarines don't go that deep, right? They're, they would get crushed. So, um, I I really hoped um, that they would survive, but I also really want to sort of look at this as a as a celebration of exploration and um and recognize that we need people who are willing to take risks in order to advance our civilization mm-hmm. the there are also some similarities in you know the area that the sub was exploring and and space right i mean these are both very hostile environments and you're traveling to these these places in in you know human made 
equipment, right? I mean, it draws some similarities between these these two areas that that we're exploring, whether it's the deep sea or, or space. Absolutely, you are in a in a tin can, basically, right? Um, that and you are subject to these intense pressures underwater. It's dark. There's no life down there. Same as in space. You know, you're in, um, you're you're in the vacuum of space. If you set foot outside your spacecraft or your submarine, you will die. If something happens, if the window breaks, you will die. I mean, these these are very real aspects of deep sea exploration and space exploration. Um, we have been, um, we have not, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to see people die in space. It's going to happen. We already have through the Apollo and the, um, and the, and the uh, Soviet programs, but it's going to, we are going to see tourists die. Uh, and we have to accept that because people die all the time doing risky things. And, and again, this is what makes us human and helps us advance. That's how we learn also about how to make things safer. Um, I hope there's an intense inquiry into what happened um, with this Ocean Gate submarine. And hopefully there wasn't fault to be assigned, but understand what what didn't work. And we've done it through the aviation industry. You know, we the, the first uh, jet commercial jet airplane, the de Havilland, had square windows, which was a catastrophic mistake. But now we don't have square windows and um, a- aircraft flight is a whole lot safer. You mentioned taking risks. Um, but there are regulations at play in both sea and space, right? And and some of the criticism of OceanGate uh, and, and the CEO is that they kind of didn't care about those regulations or or scoffed at best practices. Um, what is it like in in space at this point? Are are there a set of rules that operators have to utilize when taking regular civilians up to these dangerous and risky places? Brendan, there are no rules. And and there's actually a congressional moratorium on making rules um, that is set to expire in October of this year. Uh, there are no rules because um, you know we trust these operators to not want to kill people when they send them into space. And we we don't know how to regulate it yet. We don't know what what we should prescribe and what we shouldn't prescribe. We we have no concept of how this is going to work and how it's going to look. And so this moratorium basically said, okay, you go. We trust you. You go do what you do, and we trust people to understand. The FAA re- does require that uh, each uh, spaceflight participant, as they're called, um, uh, signs an informed consent. And that informed consent includes a description of all the ways that you can die in space or during launch or during reentry. And so that is that is the crux of, of our regulation right now is, hey, you can go ahead and spend a half a million dollars to um, to touch the heavens, but um, we're not we're telling you that we are not regulating it and you are wholly on your own. That's terrifying. <laughs> there are no rules. <laughs> there are no rules. And yeah, um, you know, you have to trust that uh, Richard Branson and, and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are running companies where they don't want people to die because that would probably be very bad for business. It's it's obviously like that because commercial space travel is in its infancy, right? I mean, do we expect there to be these regulations once the moratorium expires? and to follow up that question, does what happened to OceanGate kind of change the conversation and, and force these operators or, or or the FAA to come in and say, hey, listen, maybe maybe we do need to have a lot stricter rules than originally thought? 
So, Brennan, there's actually been uh, a bit of a debate about whether the morat- we should let the moratorium expire or not. And um, obviously, the uh, operators are concerned because regulations tend to be heavy-handed. Um, although I, I will say that um, the a lot of regulations were, were uh, addressed under the Trump administration and and whatever you think of the administration, um, they, they were able to sort of uh, relax is the wrong word, but re uh, revise the regulations so that they were more efficient and more easily available, uh, able to meet the requirements. Um, I'm concerned that if we let the moratorium expire now, we're going to have regulators in the public looking at spaceflight with the Ocean Gate in mind, and I think that would be terrible um, because when you have this kind of a tragic incident. Um, you just you feel for the families and and you don't want to see it happen again. And so the I think the um, people would lean towards coming in with a heavy hand and and making requirements. But I don't even know what those requirements would be at this point. Um, what are you going to say that you have to have a certain type of cabin? Are you going to have have to use a certain type of material? Um, the the one thing I think that we have in the United States, which is wonderful, is uh, the whole process of making those rules and regulations is an open and transparent process. And so if we do let the moratorium end um, and we and we do task the FAA with sort of regulating human spaceflight a little bit more, then the process will be open and, and the human spaceflight operators will have the opportunity to contribute to the conversation. One thing I noticed, Michelle, when following the coverage of OceanGate, when, you know, we weren't sure if if the crew was was alive and and they were still searching is that this was a kind of multinational search and rescue for this crew right i mean there was the us coast guard there was assets from um the the for the french government and with talking to you in the past i know that the outer space treaty um has certain things built into it for for rescue of of government astronauts um, what were to happen if there was a capsule launched or lost in space, a, a tourism capsule launched in space at this point? Are there any regulations from the Outer Space Treaty that would apply to this? So, yes, uh, um, Article 5 of the Outer Space Treaty, the return and rescue provision. Um, you're, you're correct. It, the, it says that astronauts are um, envoys of all humankind and that if you see an astronaut in distress, that you, you must, you are obligated to provide rescue uh, if you can. Um, there's been, you know, lawyers, they love the their definitions. What is an astronaut? Is it just a government entity? Is it not? And I mean, it, it, you'd like to think that if there are humans um, at risk in space, whether they are government astronauts or tourists, they will be treated the same. But you have to remember, Brendan, there's really technologically nothing we can do. If something were to happen tomorrow, next next month, next year, um, we don't even have, you know, launch on demand capabilities yet. What the, in in many ways, um, when this happens in space, it's going to be a lot more heart wrenching because we won't be able to go and send uh, fifteen spacecraft to look for this missing spacecraft. In fact, we'll probably know exactly where it is, and we'll unfortunately be watching people die. Finally, Michelle, I mean, this private space flight industry, I mean, for a lot of these companies, is really a way to raise revenue and help development of other things that they are doing within their organizations. Um, does something like the the OceanGate tragedy and 
these conversations that we're having about lack of regulations or or or, or absence of regulations in in this industry is that going to hinder the development of space tourism or is there people out there that will still be willing to take that risk i i for one if i had the money would still take the risk um uh, you know again I trust the when I think what you pointed out is really important. Um, these are co- the companies that are right now um, offering space tourism and, and the ones that are building uh, space stations um, all all have other clients, including the US government. So they're all meeting safety requirements imposed by the US government with respect to those contracts. They're not going to turn around and, um, not I- impose the same kind of safeties on their commercial tourism things. Um, and so when we look at OceanGate, and I don't, I've not studied um, the high seas or submarines or Titanic tourism, um, but I'm, I'm guessing that OceanGate doesn't do other stuff. And so, you know, it would be catastrophic uh, from also a government contracting point if a Blue Origin or a SpaceX uh, tourism flight were to implode or something. I mean, it, it wouldn't look good um, when we talk about spending taxpayer dollars on on those flights to station or or to the moon. And so, I think I think we there there are parallels to be drawn um, with respect to OceanGate and the and the the tragedy that occurred at the Titanic. But we also have to remember this is very different. And um, again, I'm not a deep sea explorer. I'm not even a Titanic aficionado. I've never seen the movie, um, but when we're talking about space, we're talking about the future of humanity. Um, we're talking about giving ourselves or, or training, helping ourselves explore beyond our Earth in order to save our species and to expand as we, as humans are wont to do. Uh, it's a much much bigger responsibility, and therefore, um, it's incumbent on us to support and not not sort of um, shrink back uh, when people uh, die like this. Michelle Hanlon is co-director of the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law and its Center for Air and Space Law. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Brendan, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Still to come, a rare look at Mercury, what we're learning about this planet and why missions to visit it are so difficult. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. A European spacecraft is sending us new images of Mercury. Only two missions have visited the planet closest to the sun. So why haven't we visited more often? And what might we learn with this next mission to Mercury? Well, here to answer those questions is Paul Byrne, Associate Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Paul, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Brendan. Thank you. So, Paul, Paul, I invited you here because you you posted um, some images of Mercury that were that were really stunning. Um, yeah, and these are really fresh images. Tell us, tell us where they came from and 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 what we're looking at. Sure. Okay. So, uh, the Bepi Colombo mission is a mission. It's a joint mission between the European and the Japanese space agencies. And Bepi Colombo was launched in October 2018, and it's en route to Mercury. And it just so happens that to get to Mercury is really difficult, and it actually takes lots of flybys of Mercury before the spacecraft is going slow enough to be able to be captured into Mercury's orbit. And so what happened a few days ago is that Bepi Colombo made its third of six flybys of Mercury. And in doing so, uh, there's a couple of engineering cameras on the spacecraft 
And those engineering cameras, which were originally designed just to photograph things like the solar panels deploying and the main radio antenna deploying, those uh, cameras can take these incredible views of Mercury as Betty Colombo performs these flybys. And, and so what are we seeing in, in these images, Paul? So it's worth saying first that these engineering cameras are not science cameras. That means that we're not going to be doing an awful lot of new science with them. They really are now valuable with really just for outreach and for helping people understand what Mercury looks like. But we're seeing some dramatic views of the planet, particularly those parts of the planet where there's a, the divide between day and night. We call that dividing line the Terminator, uh, as opposed to the, ro the robot. Um, and it turns <laughs> out that on the Terminator, when the sun is basically very low in the sky, it creates these dramatic shadows. And those shadows help illuminate features in the surface that are of great interest to geologists like me, tectonic structures, volcanic structures. And you can see them particularly well at the Terminator when the sun is close to setting. And that's exactly what we see in some of these images from, from the Bepi Colombo engineering cameras. We see some dramatic images of features on the surface of Mercury. These engineering cameras are like the, the teaser trailers, right? I mean, I'm, I'm remembering quite a, quite a bit of teaser images from engineering cameras on just say JWST, right? I mean, they're really yes. cool. <laughs> they're really cool. Uh, but, but, you know, the engineers put them there. That's why they're called engineering cameras. So they make sure that they can keep an eye on the different complicated parts of the spacecraft that unfold, particularly in the first few days and even hours of the mission. Uh, once that, 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 that phase of the mission is complete, the engineering cameras really aren't needed. But it turns out that they're extremely useful for things like this. But it just so happens that the really good, really high resolution science cameras that are on the, the lower orbiting spacecraft Right now, they're basically packed up inside the spacecraft. They actually can't see out. And that's why, to your point, these are teaser images. The actual images, the science camera images we're going to get from Bepi Colombo when it finally makes orbit are going to be amazing. Mm -hmm. and, and what are some of these scientific goals of, of Bepi Colombo when it gets there? So Bepi Colombo won't get to Mercury until the very end of 2025. And let me just kind of briefly tell you why it takes so long to get to Mercury. And the analogy I like to use with people is, think of it this way. Imagine you're at the top of a skyscraper and you can see all the way down to the street level and you can see your friend there. If you want to go and talk to your friend, you have two ways of doing it. One way is very fast. Unfortunately, you won't be alive to talk to your friend when you reach the ground. The other way is to go the slower way and take the elevator down. Now, it's an imperfect analogy, but the message is the same. We can send something to Mercury really quickly. It only takes about three months. But it's going to go so fast by the time it gets to Mercury because it's falling into the sun's gravity well that it will either impact Mercury or fly right past it into the sun. If we want to orbit Mercury with a spacecraft, turns out the moment that spacecraft leaves Earth, it's going too fast to make orbit around Mercury. Hmm. And so that's what's led to this really protracted uh, trajectory that Bepi Colombo is taking. It did one flyby of Earth, two of Venus, and six of Mercury. And on its seventh approach to Mercury in late 2025, it will finally be going slow enough that its engine will be able to fire and it will be able to capture itself into orbit around Mercury. So that's simply why it takes so long. It's about as long to get to Mercury with the current technology we have as it is to get to Jupiter or Saturn, which is not something you might intuitively think about given that right. Mercury is so much closer to us. But right. it's because it's so close to the sun, that's what makes it so hard. So it takes so, so long to slow down. <laughs> it takes so exactly. To, and, and, you know, if we had, you know, the, the Enterprise D warp engines, that, this is how it goes away. But with the current technology we have and the size of the engine we can put into space, the size of the fuel tank, the lifting capability of modern rockets, it turns out that, that Mercury really is a challenge to get to. 
which is one of the reasons why there have been so few missions to Mercury in the past. But it will be worth the wait, right, Paul? I mean, what are we expecting to come from this mission? Right. So Baby Colombo is going to build upon the legacy of the two previous missions that have visited Mercury. The first was Mariner 10, which visited Mercury in the 70s. And it actually did flybys. It only did three flybys. And, and Mariner 10 is actually still out there orbiting the sun somewhere. NASA flew the Messenger mission to Mercury. Uh, it left in 2004. It made orbit in 2011. Again, a long cruise phase. And it operated for four years. And I worked on that mission. That was the first mission to ever orbit Mercury. And Messenger reveals some astounding findings about that planet, stuff we didn't really expect. And so Baby Colombo is going to build on those findings in the Messenger mission. Baby Colombo is going to have, like I said, two spacecraft. And one of the novel things is that those spacecraft together will be able to take measurements of the solar environment and the interaction, the interaction of uh, Mercury's magnetic field with the solar magnetic field and the solar wind uh, at the same time from two different altitudes. We've never done that before. We're also going to get high-resolution images of the surface of Mercury. We're going to be able to compare those images with the images in the Messenger mission, which were taken about a decade and a half before, to see if there's any evidence of any surface change in the intervening years. That will help us understand what processes shape the surface today. Bepi Colombo is also going to carry a thermal camera, which, Be which Messenger did not have. And that's going to give us a new insight into understanding what the composition of the material on the surface is, and also how it changes geographically. Uh, there's a host of other things it's going to be doing as well, principally trying to figure out how does this planet, which is small, it's not much bigger than our moon, has such a gigantic core. One of the weird things that we learned a long time ago about Mercury and that the Messenger mission was able to confirm for us is that its core, its iron core, like the likes to say that Earth has, is outsized. It's really, really weirdly big. And we don't know if that's because it naturally formed that way or because perhaps one hypothesis says that Mercury may originally have been bigger. It might even have been the size of Mars. And at some point early in its life got hit by stuff. And that's stripped off the outer layers. And that's why the core is now proportionately so big. It actually might originally have been about the same proportion as, say, Earth's or Mars. Uh, but Mercury lost a lot of its outside material. Now, we don't know that, but the Bepi Colombo mission, amongst many of its science goals, will try and answer that question. Mm -hmm. Why have there been so few missions to Mercury? It, it's got to be not because of lack of interest, right? Is it is it the right. environment that, that Mercury is in that makes it difficult to visit it with, with scientific instruments? You know, Mercury is an unforgiving place. Um, there's a couple of things that we have to contend with. So first is a long cruise phase. In fact, uh, there, was a, there was a trajectory engineer at JPL who figured out for the first time in 1985, she was able to figure out how to actually orbit Mercury. Prior to that, there weren't any solutions for how to orbit Mercury with the technology at hand. Uh, which is why that first mission, Mariner 10 in the 70s, only did flybys. So we only learned how to do orbital stuff of Mercury in 85. And then it was around 10 or 11 years later that the messenger mission was selected for flight and it got underway. Um, that's, a, that's a major limitation, not knowing how to orbit something with the technology and the fuel we have. Once that was cracked, there was a lot of interest. And then the messenger mission basically was the one that NASA picked. And, and usually when one mission is under development and then flies, the community kind of holds off for a while to see what questions that it can reveal and then determine what the next mission should do. Uh, Bepi Colombo was actually uh, started around the same time, but it, it takes longer to generate these missions from ESA. Um, but, you know, it, it's a challenging environment. Even if we had all the money in the world, we still have to have some really capable spacecraft. Because, for example, in addition to how long it takes to get there, you're quite close to the sun. So the solar heating is very high. In fact, the Messenger mission had two solar panels for power like most spacecraft do, 
but two-thirds of the solar panel area on the messenger mission were actually mirrors because there was so much sunlight that they actually, the engineers needed to reflect a lot of that energy. Um, the other issue, of course, is that in addition to it being hot because you're relatively close to the sun, the planet itself on the day side is hot and it's reflecting a lot of infrared heat as well. So even when the spacecraft is relatively far from the sun orbiting Mercury, the planet itself is baking the, the spacecraft. So you have to make sure that the spacecraft is either shielded from the sun and that it's got some kind of ability to handle those high temperatures that are being reflected from the planet as well. And, you know, that just makes it really challenging. And then there's one more thing. Because you're so much closer to the sun, there are tides that the sun basically applies to Mercury and to the spacecraft. And those tides change the orbit of the spacecraft. So you have to carry a lot of fuel or you're going to crash into the ground pretty quickly. Now, in the case of Messenger, the engineers, that mission was originally designed to last for one year. It lasted a little more than four years, which is a testament to how good the engineering was and how good the trajectory planners were for how they were able to conserve fuel, particularly on the flight to Mercury. Uh, the Bethy Colombo mission will take a slightly different approach. It isn't designed to last as long, but it will be closer to the planet in a more circular orbit, which means we'll get new, different science. Um, but even then, for all the time it's taken to develop Bethy and for all the time it takes to get there, Bethy Colombo will probably orbit at best about two Earth years at Mercury. Now, that's enough time for it to get its science, but it is a really hard place to do science, particularly for a long time, particularly for what are often cash-strapped space agencies. Mm -hmm. And because of just the hellish landscape this planet is, I mean, is a surface mission just completely off the table? Will we ever get to the surface of, of Mercury? So you know what? I was involved in a study we did about three years ago to answer that exact question because the next natural thing after we orbit planets, we fly by, we orbit, what we like to do then is land because then you have a whole new set of science questions you can answer. And so a Mercury lander has been talked about for quite a long time. Uh, there was a study done in 2010 to work out basically what the technical challenges were and how much it would cost. And I was involved in a study three years ago to basically revisit that, uh, that 2010 study with new technology, with new science insight from Messenger to work out what it would take. And what we found was that a lander is absolutely on the cards. Uh, it, it would be expensive. All these kinds of missions are. One option, the way we studied it, was that we had the spacecraft land uh, near the equator now, Mercury is not tidally locked to the sun. So that means that unlike the way we only ever see one side of the moon, Mercury does rotate on its axis. It just does so slowly. So our plan was that we would land at dusk and then we would operate through the Mercury night and then the spacecraft would come to and it would cease functioning. That's what the engineers called it. I called it explode <laughs> uh, when the sun would come up. But that would give you about three Earth months on the surface of Mercury because we would operate during the night. Uh -huh. Another option, which we didn't study, but is a really tantalizing one, is that we now know, thanks to the messenger mission, and this is something that Bepi Colombo will continue to study, there are some craters in the north and south pole of Mercury that because Mercury has no axial tilt at all, some craters never see the sun. They're called what we call permanently shadowed regions. And so it is possible that you could put a lander in one of these permanently shadowed craters near the north or south pole and maybe stick a solar panel up on some kind of mast that would stick up over the crater rim, and we could build a solar panel to be able to resist those temperatures and provide power, and you could potentially have a lander sit there for a very long time. Hmm. So there's still a lot of engineering work to be done to figure out what the best approach for this is, and of course we would have to then basically get the community to push for this kind of technology and the money to support a mission like this. Um, but certainly, you know, a Mercury lander is possible. And I'd love to see it fly in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. 
Paul Byrne is an associate professor of Earth and Planetary Science at Washington University in St. Louis. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Always happy to chat. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are We There Yet is production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Amy Diaz. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>